Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes, and today's guest is Ryan Babenzian, the founder of the sneaker brand Greats. In this episode, Ryan and I sat down at the Remote Conference in Los Angeles to discuss balancing direct and wholesale retail, quality versus cost, and how he defines luxury. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Ryan. Hi. So we're here at Remote in Los Angeles, and you were just on stage. Uh, what were you talking about? Uh, t- well, I did two panels, but today we were talking about kind of brand and, and, and sustainability, mm-hmm. uh, which I think often gets automatically thought of as a uh, environmental impact right. and how, how you make shoes that are less uh, environmentally damaging. Uh-huh. However, well, and I didn't talk about this on stage, but I, I kind of wanted to. Um, we think that making things that last longer is mm-hmm. also a way to kind of improve, uh, you know, a more sustainable shoe mm-hmm. doesn't mean one that uses sustainable materials. Mm-hmm. If it lasts longer and you're buying less and less and less because right. shoes fall apart really mm-hmm. fast, that's a better shoe to us. Yeah. And so, so that's how sustainability relates to grades. How do you make shoes that, that last longer? Well, we use better materials, premium quality materials, and that's the start of why things last longer. Um, but we are doing something a little more enviro, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to that, um, which I announced today. Uh, we, we, we make a knit shoe, and we saw an opportunity to use uh, 100% recycled yarns within the knit. Uh-huh. So by the by Q1 of 19, all of our knit product will be uh, using a product called Econeal, which is 100% recycled yarns. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that will actually have a, a, a more uh, in-line environmental impact on the way we manufacture that particular shoe. Right. Nice. And so and so when did you launch Great? How long uh, ago now? Well, we launched, we say we, we came out of beta in June of 14. Okay. So it's been a few years, and, yeah. and whenever you introduced the the brand to the market, what was the what was the positioning? Everyone talks about storytelling. What was the the story and the message that surrounded the brand when you introduced it to customers? When we first launched, we were really focused on, and still are today. You know, what's the best value proposition we can offer the customer? I think this idea of direct direct to consumer then and 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 now more than ever, to me is the only way to launch a brand, whatever it is. I think that it's very challenging today and every day forward mm-hmm. to launch a business through the traditional wholesale channel. Right. So I think you need a really big digital position to be a brand that will be successful going forward. Inside of that, we were able to offer a lot of value, right? Because if we're stripping out the wholesale part of our business, which we did, mm-hmm. um, we should be able to offer you something that's of a higher quality for less money because the economics of the the product are different. Right. So we invested a lot of what we do, the savings that we saw from wholesale, we made sure we invested and then invested again in using better stuff in the Mm -hmm. shoe Mm -hmm. to make a better shoe. Um, So value is a big part of the, the launch and still is. We just talk about it a little bit differently. Right. And, and what about the idea, you know, I think some of the, the brands position that launched direct to consumer, it was less, you know, re- using money that's saved from not selling wholesale and reinvesting into the product and more 
giving customers a better price. Do you did you find that there was some like expectation that like oh this like you know how do how do customers think about price and quality now that you think it's different than wholesale brands? I, I think I think people are aware of like how things are priced mm-hmm. in that they know that if they buy it at wholesale there's a markup that needs to happen on top of the cost of the shoe and then they understand that right so and i think the reason that direct to consumer brands are so meaningful today is because we're all making something that should be better than the old version the uh-huh. old wholesale version and giving you a better price so it really is a win win right mm-hmm. the the business the business economics work for the brand the uh, price is generally better in, in director d- digitally native brands to mm-hmm. the customer mm-hmm. and you're getting a higher quality right people you know information is readily available and now direct to consumer or digitally native whatever you want to call it is a 10 year old business model so everybody's pretty aware of it uh-huh. what do you what do you prefer do you do you tend to go towards saying direct to consumer or it's a, it's a direct to consumer brand or what about digitally native yeah we have this conversation in, in their office a lot is there a difference are they the same to me there's a difference uh-huh. and i think direct to consumer was the you know e-commerce 1.0 version of what brands were mm-hmm. they all a lot of those brands at that time believed they would never have a retail store uh which we never thought was right mm-hmm. so we came in somewhere in the middle of the d to c phenomenon mm-hmm. um but our position always was we're going to have retail for sure. Right. Uh, and we may even have some wholesale. We, we view wholesale as a different um, means to an end. Uh-huh. And we have a wholesale relationship and a very good one with, with Nordstrom. Uh-huh. And we do have two stores. But we thought those three things together done effectively were the best way to build the brand. Right. So it wasn't... Those are just... Those are distribution channels. Uh-huh. They're not... Um, singular strategies on like you should only have one or the other and i think the world has realized at this point that having one two and three and finding the right allocation of those distribution channels is the way to build a great company Mm -hmm. um and it's interesting though so how did you work with nordstrom without you know doing the the wholesale brand uh route that that you set out to avoid that isn't ideal anymore well I, i think you know you give up some things when you work with a with a, a wholesaler, right? Mm-hmm. You you bring up you give up a little bit of the brand control. You don't have the direct relationship with the customer, and in order to do that and feel confident that it's going to be okay, you then have to work with a, a wholesaler that's going to emulate what you do on your own. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to learn from Nordstrom. Like they just are known for a hundred years to be the best customer service company in, in the world. Right. Um, and we are inspired by that. So that was a big thing for me that their obsession with customer is the same as ours. Mm-hmm. So out of all the wholesalers that we could work with and were approached with, we really felt that they were the best. Mm-hmm. And that's why we decided to work with them. The business relationship is unique. I think, again, this is a testament to Nordstrom. They are forward thinking in the way brands are being created today and they know that digitally native brands are the future and they're going to have to adapt to the way they work with brands because the old way there's no new brands coming out in the old way Mm -hmm. right so they've adapted they're ahead of the curve uh it's been a year now and it's it's a really great partnership that we're growing and very enthusiastic about Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think Nordstrom has done a lot to respond, look at the industry and say, you know, here are the players that customers are responding to and how do we then respond to those brands and, and bring them in. But how, so whenever you built the business model and it wasn't accounting for wholesale, how then do you sell to wholesale without it sort of breaking the, yeah, <laughs> the, the mean, model? It's still, it's an, it's a, it's still a learning curve, right? Uh -huh. Like we knew we were going to have to do things a little different than we do when we do them ourselves. Mm -hmm. They knew that too. So if we can meet in the middle, we can, we can start to work together and make it work. Mm -hmm. um, but we waited three years before we did that because mm -hmm. we weren't ready to do it. Right. Uh, even though they would have liked us to be, we mm -hmm. knew that we had to get our own footing first and then we could attempt to, to open up that, that sort of relationship. But it's, it's an evolution. I think mm -hmm. it's iterative. It, it's changing uh, quarterly. We're getting better at it. They're getting better at it. Mm -hmm. We're both learning. We weren't the first ones they started to work with. So right. I think they came into it knowing um, the unique challenges that they were going to have in working with a digitally native brand. And mm -hmm. one example, like very simple, uh, EDI compliant, it's a, it's a software that's used to kind of ship into any, any wholesale, really. Mm -hmm. And we weren't. Mm. and aren't and they needed to figure out a way to work around that right. with us they did uh it allowed us to get there in a way that we wouldn't ha have been able to 10 years ago because they mm. would have never even considered working with a brand that wasn't edi compliant right and it seems like like you mentioned uh the the um strategies and, and playbooks around digitally native brands isn't that you're cutting off different distribution channels. It's more that you have a better relationship with your customer. And so it seems like, you know, those retail channels are getting smarter, like stores and wholesale partnerships. How do you use what you've kind of, the foundation of, of customer relationships and customer insight that you've built with these, with your customers over time by having the online store and, and starting that way? How do you think that that permeates into both the great stores that you have now and a partnership with, with a company like Nordstrom and, and wherever else that might go next. Yeah, well, as, as I said before, like one of the things you give up when you work with a wholesaler is that direct first touch one-on-one -on -one relationship. Right. So we don't have pure visibility to that particular customer. Mm -hmm. Our assumption is that if they like the brand and they buy it there, uh, they'll come back to either Nordstrom where there's a partial offering or to us where there's a fuller offering. Right. Uh, to date, though, we haven't been able to kind of like with a sharp pencil define what that is. Mm -hmm. In our own store, we know you know that's another that's that is a direct channel, um, and we view those customers the same. We put them in a different bucket. Mm -hmm. The way we acquire a customer is viewed. You know, there's retail, there's online, there's mobile, and there's Nordstrom. Mm -hmm. And then we start to look at that data and like understand. Are they behaving the same? Are mm -hmm. they different? Are men and women shopping in different ways? Uh, and that's the fun part about being direct with the customer because we really do, they have a direct line to us. Right. Right. It's not, it's not a telephone, but they talk to us daily uh -huh. through multiple touch points. And because we're listening every day and because we hear that right away, uh, we're able to make smarter choices mm -hmm. uh, and, and the things we do in the future. Right. And so, yeah, do you see wholesale as a primarily a customer acquisition channel? Pr 
primarily we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, brand awareness. Mm-hmm. We're very confident in the product we offer and the brand we're building. Right. Now we need to get in front of more people. There's lots of ways to do that. Being in 60 Nordstrom doors is one of them. And, you know, there's great co-tenancy, if you will. We sit next to the luxury players in the footwear space. Mm-hmm. And that's a good place to be. Like We want people to understand that you can buy this from us or you can buy that from them. Here's the education process happens on the floor from the salesperson. Mm-hmm. And when they hear that we make an Italian-made luxury sneaker for $179 that usually resonates. Mm-hmm. And what what do you think about other uh, customer acquisition tools that have really been um, associated with, with the direct-to-consumer brand era, like Facebook and other social media channels? Do you see that, you know, this push to open stores and pop-ups and, and maybe go into a Nordstrom or a Target, depending on the type of brand that it is, do you see that sort of supplanting the the use of digital advertising tools to get customers? Do you think that that kind of has run out of steam? No, I, I think I think um, you know marketing. Everybody wants to ask the question or mm. know the answer to a single channel, right? And I think we get asked that all the time by investors, by other brands. And I think the way to look at it is really to look at it as a customer journey. And all of those channels, Facebook, Instagram, um, your customer service return tool, we use Returnly, mm-hmm. uh, your store, your wholesale relationship, your podcast, wherever the brand is being heard about, talked about, or experienced, it's putting all that together efficiently that makes the most successful marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. Right. Of course, you need to measure them channel by channel mm-hmm. and then get, again, the right mix and allocation. How much do I invest in each of these channels? But to say that one shouldn't happen is probably not the right way to look at it. Right. right? It, we, yeah. They all need to be working in, in unison mm-hmm. to create the most efficient marketing spend uh, across the year. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's gotten harder to launch a brand online than it was when, when you launched Greats? Or the barrier is kind that to entry is kind of rising back up after it kind of fell. On the I ground. think if you if you launch a brand, we didn't spend any money on marketing for the first eighteen months. Wow! So if your if your strategy is to go out and engineer a lot of traffic through mm-hmm. Facebook, then it's more expensive. I wouldn't say it's harder. I would just say it would cost you a lot more money. Right. And I I'm not sure I'd recommend doing that. I, I think that's part of the challenge with raising too much money too soon and then. Mm-hmm really being forced to kind of do these things that ultimately erode brand equity. Right. Uh, and, and there's been a lot of discussion on what's the right trajectory of growth for a sustainable business over time. Right, especially for a consumer brand. Of course. Like, I sat on a panel earlier with, you know, the CEO of Birkenstock. Mm-hmm. That brand's 200 years old. And like, if you th- we think long term, like how do we build a brand that's going to be around longer right. than the exit window of a limited partner in a venture fund? Uh-huh. We don't think about that. We think about what's the best way to build a brand over time. Right. And has Greats raised VC funding? We have. How much? <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing. Uh, it's it's public knowledge, uh, right. so it's not controversial. We've raised a total of thirteen million dollars over. Four and a half years. Oh, I mean, that's conservative too. It's, when it we're, comes to what other brands we're have raised. very 
you know, the, we punch above our weight class, as they say. The brands we get compared to, compared to, we've raised a fraction of the capital they've raised. And again, that goes back to kind of our original thought and strategy. We want to build a sustainable brand, right. meaning we want it to be around. We don't want to be a hype brand. We don't want to grow too fast. We don't want to grow too slow. Mm-hmm. So our, our need for capital, while is still present, uh, isn't the kind of need that somebody that raises $40 million out of the box and then tries to figure it out. Right. We wanted to make sure we figured it out before we raised more money. Right. And so you know what you need to use it for. It's not buying customers. Correct. So when you look at the, when you, if you think about, you know, how to build a, a long lasting brand, building longevity into the, into the makeup of the brand, what metrics do you look at and, and value, uh, in terms of, you know, like you said, you don't want to be a hype brand, but you have, you have to be growing. So what do you, what do you look at in terms to watch, make sure it's on the right track? Well, we, we make sure we look at a bunch, mm-hmm. um, but the couple of things like for that question, I would say we look at retention, like how many people are coming back again and buying again. Right. Uh, and we, we do very well there. We look at uh, organic traffic versus paid traffic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, proud to say that our free traffic is higher than our paid traffic and continuing to go that way. And that happens over time as brand awareness gets bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. from the investment we made last year, the year before. The more shoes that get into the market, the more people are talking about it. And we're starting to see, not starting to, we've been seeing steadily mm-hmm. um, the shift in where traffic comes from and less and less of it is paid. Right. Well, yeah. That's Which is what you want to see. Exactly. And so then going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of how stores and a Nordstrom relationship play a role in an overall brand health and, and kind of diversifying that that traffic mix and that, you know, where customers are coming in mix, do you, are you seeing where, how do you look at Lyft in those areas? And, and what does that sort of say to you as, as someone who's making decisions on where to expand next in terms of, do I open a store here? Do I partner with the, with an existing retailer there? How do you sort of take that, all that into consideration? I mean, we don't overcomplicate this. We understand where our customers are based on our digital purchasing, right? right? And then we'll say, okay, if we're going to open stores, let's go where the fish are. Mm -hmm. We're going to go to the top 10 markets first. Mm -hmm. Um, In the case of Nordstrom, we wanted to work with their best performing stores. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily around our own customer. It was like, where can we go where Nordstrom's best customer is? And that's how we started that relationship or that rollout. What we saw when there was overlap in cities where there was a Nordstrom we saw organic lift and brand traffic. Mm. There you go. So there you have it. <laughs> not complicated at all. No, it's not. It's um, not. People tend to try to really make that a... Mm-hmm. The goal for us to take really complicated problems and simplify mm. them. As, right. and, and if you can do that, then you're going you're gonna to find the fastest way to success. Right. And, you know, I think it's interesting then if you look at what this means for a brand like Greats going forward, what, what the next year looks like, what the next five years looks like. Do you think that, you know, what what is in the long run is going to differentiate um, a modern brand from a traditional brand, if you can lump them into those two simplified categories, in terms of, you know, how they sell, how they market? Do you think that eventually that's going to kind of look like traditional brands or brands that we've known them? What what, en- what ends up differentiating in the long run? Well, the... the 
No, I think digitally native brands, for the most part, the big differentiator is where incumbent brands are trying to get more digital, we're growing our digital, adding a few um, retail stores, mm -hmm. but the volume of our business will always be online. Mm. And that's a big difference, right? right. Like, um, just that in and of itself changes the, the way we, the, the business economics of our business over everybody that's trying to get more digital. Uh -huh. So you see online taking up the, the majority of sales for the, for it, the long It time. is and will always, will always be by quite a lot. Um, I think it's unlikely that we'd ever get to the wholesale side of our business to be the dominant Mm -hmm. part of our business right which is you can certainly brands. drive growth there mm -hmm. uh, but then you start to give up a lot of the benefits of what it means to be a digitally native brand right so finding the right balance is really key uh, I'd be lying to you if I told you that I have the exact number it should be I think you know, we the way we look at it is like e-commerce and mobile should be the biggest mm -hmm. retail our own store should be the second biggest and wholesale should be the third as we grow we'll find the right mix of what that is but that's that's our thought right and I want to dig into the the design and the production that that underpins this this business strategy because it's it's interesting when you think about the fashion industry you have these if you look at the direct-to-consumer brands the digitally native brands it feels like it's it's business first rather than product first if you compare it to like the CFDA fashion fund and like those designers. How do you see greats as, you know, marrying those two, making <laughs> sure that when you're you know you're thinking about distribution and, and marketing and opening stores that the product that's being made is is like maintained is like still that high quality that you set out to make. So funny you mentioned the CFDA because I just saw Stephen Kolb earlier who mm -hmm. hosted a panel this morning and his mm -hmm. favorite shoe is is the Greats Wooster and he was wearing it. Oh, nice. Which is a slip-on sneaker made in Italy. Uh -huh. Black. Right. That's his, that's his go-to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a man that works in fashion. Right. So the way we think about it, we, we understand why we play in fashion and why people put, it, put us in a category of fashion. But we truly don't think of ourselves as a fashion brand. Mm -hmm. We don't do the things fashion companies do. We don't. Well, like what? Um, runway shows, you know, over budgeted photo shoots, all the what I would think are really dis big disadvantages mm -hmm. to those types of businesses. Um, we don't do those. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we are not fashionable, and that doesn't mean we don't think of ourselves as an important part of what you wear. Right. We certainly do. Mm -hmm. But we're more focused on style, mm -hmm. which we think is more, that has more longevity. So the way we talk about our product is premium quality essentials. Mm -hmm. Some of those are more fashionable. So every season we come out with a color or a prints that are very fashion forward. Mm -hmm. But the core of our business is the thing you're going to wear every day, every week, every year. Right. And that goes back to the kind of sustainable part. Everybody needs a great white sneaker. Mm -hmm. They just do. Every single person should have one. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of our business. Does every person need a silk chiffon fuchsia colored sneaker mm -hmm. probably not right but some people buy it for fashion and then it's gone and then they get rid of it or mm -hmm. they stop wearing it so you have to find the right balance of what that is and we don't want to be 
all white all the time or all navy or all tan. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to be fashion you got to find them you got to find the balance and that's who we are as a brand right and and we're we're confident in that we own it we think that's the biggest part of the market Mm -hmm. um and that's what we do right did you have a design background going into uh launching the brand i had a design appreciation uh Uh, i've always been into product Uh from you know at the time i was a little kid but no i have no formal design education Mm -hmm. I think I understand customers better than design. I, I understand design. I, I don't design, though. Right. I, I edit. Right. Right. We have a great design team. We have a great group of uh, advisors that we understand this is what's coming. Mm-hmm. This is what's going to be super trendy. Right. And then where do we go close to that trend? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what I do very, very well. We don't need all the trend. We need one or two. And we right. think, you know, we did a blush colored sneaker for women. Mm-hmm. And it's still one of our best sellers, and it's been almost two years, mm-hmm. so or eighteen months rather. That that's a trend color that continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, picking that color was really important. Right. We pick some wrong ones too. I mean, we're not always right, uh-huh. but uh, certainly I'm not. But we get it right more than we get it wrong. Mm-hmm. So so basically, you hired you hired for design. You hired you went to seek out a, a partner. <laughs> Are all the sneakers made in the same same uh, manufacturer in Italy? Uh, the Italian ones are all made in the same. Uh-huh. same oh, but place. they're not all. Uh, mostly Italian, and by so we're we're actually moving out of uh, sub hundred dollar product, mm-hmm. and that product is is made in Asia. Mm-hmm. We're moving not Asia makes amazing stuff. That's not why we're moving. Uh, our customer just wants a a more premium product for us. So the mm-hmm. volume of our business is done out of Italy and we're going to go to 100% Italian made uh, by Q1 of 2019. And that includes the knit that I mentioned. Yeah. So we'll be the only person uh, making a sustainable knit shoe mm-hmm. uh, in, in Italy. It's it's interesting and because and, I think that, you know, if, when you're looking acro- like across categories and these brands launched online and, you know, a lot of times you're, you're hearing, oh, sustainably made, the best quality you can find in the market. How do you like? How do you make sure that you know you're you're fulfilling these these customer uh, promises? And because everyone can't have the most high quality shoe or product, and so it's interesting to look at how quality is defined. How do you how do you define it? How do we define quality? Yeah, um, we would. Well, we define it in a few different ways, but I think the, to to boil it down, mm-hmm. if we can save, you know. $3 on a shoe to use a sub par leather, mm-hmm. right? That's a margin. That's a lot of money, right? And, right? and most brands would be forced to do that because they need to find the profit somewhere. Uh-huh. We don't do that. We use that more expensive leather mm-hmm. and we use the better factory because we want to offer the best we can. Now, we wouldn't do it at the expense of being able to be a, a sustainable business, mm-hmm. meaning a profitable one, which we're on path to be. Mm-hmm. But we don't want to cut corners just to save a few pennies. Right. Um, and, and I say that knowing that we aren't on pace to be a profitable business, but we still have to stay true to what we, our vision, which is offering the best value we can in whatever category of price. Mm-hmm. Um, so in our Italian-made stuff, uh, we are the most 
accessibly priced luxury sneaker made out of Italy in the world. Mm-hmm. And we use really premium materials and we'll continue to do that. Mm-hmm. That's how we define quality. So how do you define luxury? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I define it. I think the market has, right? Mm-hmm. If you're making shoes in Italy using the materials we are, that's a luxury level mm-hmm. shoe. Um, but the market defined that. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I think luxury means a lot of things. Uh, luxury is starting to mean new things. So it's not just the intrinsic value of the product. It's also what the brand stands for. Right. Um, it's a luxury to be able to do what we do. It's a luxury to be able to buy what we buy. It's, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's certainly not cheap. $179 is not a cheap shoe. Right. And, it, and it's not for everybody. That, everybody can't afford that. Mm-hmm. But for the people that can and the people that are in that category, we offer the best value. Um, and we do it in an in a ethical way. and We do it in an efficient way. We st- we, we, as a company, we, we have a saying called be one of the greats. And that really means like kind of doing the right thing all the time. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to unpack that message. And that's a luxury to be able to do that. Like right. to be able to stand for something and not have to cut corners and not have to uh, be forced to do things you know are wrong mm-hmm. just to, to make a dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really proud to, to be in that position. Right. It's, it's interesting. And I, I think uh, we're almost out of time, but I, you know, I think it's been uh, a good breakdown of what separates the, the modern brands from the, the old school brands that are struggling. Uh, but what do you think will separate looking forward to the next year and the few years ahead, the, the digitally native modern brands that will scale from the ones who won't? What will separate digitally natives at a scale that won't? Yeah. Um, well, the big difference will be brands that can be profitable. I mm-hmm. think like there was this mad rush. It was a gold rush 10 years ago. There was too much money given to people that were just starting anything online. Right. Then the market realized that that alone wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. There had to be operational execution. There had to be solid brand building. There had to be an addressable market and there had to be a real path to growth and profitability. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be just growth and we'll figure it out later. You had to be able to show that this company can grow and be profitable in this amount of time. So the business economics have to work. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the difference. Right. And I think you're seeing it. I think you're seeing the brands fade out that Mm -hmm. just don't have the gas to get to some crazy level. Mm -hmm. There's anomalies in our business where you have very highly valued digitally native brands, highly valued, but that doesn't mean they've succeeded yet. Right. So and to go from valuation of a billion dollars to a successful exit mm-hmm. is another hurdle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you, you, know, you know, you have to watch out for those things. Right. What would you consider to be a, sex, a successful exit for, for greats? Well, it's not about a number. It's just about, like, do we make... One, we're not building it just to exit. We're right. building a brand first. And like if, if, we do, if we build the best brand, we think the opportunity to exit at whatever level mm-hmm. will appear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a successful exit would be, does everybody make money? Do we exit with a partner that understands the vision of the brand and allows us to continue to build it? Mm-hmm. Great. That would be a successful exit. Awesome. Well, really interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for coming in, Ryan, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. 
If you've been enjoying the Glossy podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. As a reward for listening, use the code Hillary25 at glossy.co slash plus to get 25% off an annual subscription. That's H-I-L-A-R-Y 25 at glossy.co slash plus. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.